1: I remember getting this cold clarity, w- almost like a voice in my head said, there's something in your head. Mm. And, and I kind of examined that as an idea. Um, and I thought, there is something in my head. Mm. Something's changed in my head. And, of course, being an Australian male, I did nothing about
2: sure. it. What if the writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change more reflection of the real world. Nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? Welcome to the first episode of A Theory of Mind, a podcast about brains, minds, and the lived-in experience of change. I'm your host, author, and biographer, Ben McKelvey, and each week we're going to be interviewing someone about their brain and their life, and in most instances, those brains and lives will be atypical. That's certainly the case with my first guest. Hugh has been a voice of moral reason and assured enquiry for the last 30 years, working as a correspondent for 10, 9, ABC, and CNN. He's done important work across the world, often in terrifying circumstances, and has duly been recognised with a Walkley and a Logie. In this conversation, we do talk a little bit about his calling as a journalist and what it means to work in places where a lot of people are just trying to stay alive. But Hugh's exceptional work is not why he was asked to join me on this inaugural podcast. There are two reasons why I wanted Hugh to come and launch the podcast. Uh, One is because I thought Hugh would be a great person to talk a little about why I'm doing this podcast and speak a little about uh, an instance when about 15 years ago the function and efficacy of my brain changed significantly. Uh, We get into that about a third of the way into the podcast but first we talk about Hugh's brain and how his mental state is changing. Uh, Hugh has discovered, uh, perhaps a little more than a year ago now, uh, that a tumour has developed into his brain. Um, it's not something he's talked about that much before, but uh, it is something that we go into in quite quite a lot of depth in this podcast. Uh, we start the podcast and the series with Hugh talking about this discovery, and after that we move around a little bit, speaking about calling and purpose, and we also speak briefly about uh, the loss of Hugh's mother, um, which was something that he had only discovered an hour before we recorded I really appreciate Hugh coming in while he was grieving like that. The fact that he did, I think, speaks a lot about what kind of person Hugh is. Anyway, uh, I really enjoyed this chat and I hope you get something
1: out of it. So here's Hugh Remington. So it's a hand span to the mic. Yeah, that
2: sounds about right. I'm sure you've got a lot more experience with this than I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hugh, so uh, Christmas 2019, I actually got a call from you, uh, I think probably six weeks after that, and you had sort of told me what had happened on um, on Christmas Eve, and um, I was kind of stunned. But could you sort of uh, relate again what happened to you in that incident?
1: Sure. Well, I should say that you were my guide and inspiration because it was, <laughs> you know, we'll get to that. But yeah. the... Um, so the end of 2019 was a uh, was a difficult year for me and my family. My wife was diagnosed with cancer in um, November, and uh, she'd had uh, it turned out to be um, uh, you know a fair challenge. Mm. So she had uh, had major operations, and uh, at the same time, my parents in New Zealand's health was starting to decline, particularly my mum so I'd had to go in the middle of this off to New Zealand to try to to be of some help in that. And then on Christmas Eve, I was due to read the news on Channel 10. I had a spell of reading the news. My wife had come out from her most recent operation only about a a week before, so she was due to go back to the hospital um, to have some post-operative care, tubes checked and so on. And I I knew there was huge things to do because they were then going to go for a week with her sister who was visiting from overseas up the coast Mm. and I was going to read the news for a little span. let her take a break up the coast, take the kids and so on. And so on Christmas Eve I'd got up early. I had to read the news later that afternoon. I'd got up early and I'd gone for my usual walk through the Centennial Park and I'd noticed that um, I was uh, unaccountably tired And I thought, well, I've got a lot to do today, get everyone ready for their trip away, get presents, all this stuff. I'll go down to the cafe on the corner and I'll get a coffee. It being Christmas Eve, the cafe is a bakery as well, so there are queues of people. And while I was waiting, I thought, well, they had newspapers sitting around the place. I was feeling kind of this weird feeling of tiredness, dead Mm. dead tired. And so I picked up a newspaper to read it while I waited in the queue, and I looked at the at the newspaper and none of it made any sense to me uh, and i I kind of um, I was kind of annoyed mm. initially, I was annoyed.
2: You thought it was a subbing problem.
1: I I was annoyed at the crap writing. (laughs) I thought, this is complete rubbish. This doesn't make any sense. I thought the the, the Sydney Morning Herald sub-editors must all have taken an early mark and disappeared because this stuff is just rubbish. And I waited in my queue. I just wanted a coffee. And there was a woman in front of me, obviously, in the queue, and she'd made her order or something. And I got up to give my order. And I hadn't spoken to anyone all morning, basically. And I I realised I didn't have a single word. I couldn't speak. And um, words had lost their meaning. But the woman in front of me had asked for a latte, which I recognised was a coffee. So I said, latte. Mm. I just parroted what she said. And um, I understood what people were saying because she said, do you want to have it here or take it away? And, and I indicated here. I couldn't have said it. I indicated with my hand here. and um, And I'm still kind of... Bewildered a little bit, but I thought I'll have a coffee here, which is not what I wanted to do. I wanted to go home and get on with all the things I had to do. Um, but I thought I'll I'll examine the newspaper a bit more, try to understand what's going on. So I sat down, the coffee arrived, and I started trying to read the Sydney Morning Herald, and it just was getting nowhere. And it was more frustrating than anything else. It certainly wasn't it didn't induce any anxiety or anything. And uh, and I turned over the th- I thought I'll read the sports page. Anyone can read the sports page, sure. right? It's <laughs> and I, could, I couldn't make any sense. And then I, I saw there was a Daily Telegraph over there and I thought, well, anyone can read the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> yeah. Quite quite genuinely, the Daily Telegraph is written for... Everybody. ...to be read by, you know, by anyone. So, And I, I couldn't make any sense of, sense of it at all. The words were meaningless. They were just shapes on the page. Uh, I went back home. My wife had just got out of the shower and I went to try to say that I had some... something... Uh, to, to, to just account, recount this experience and I wasn't making a lot of sense but words were coming mm. and I could certainly understand her and she was had so many things to do as well. And she was looking a little frustrated and saying, I said, I don't think, I'm not well, mm. I, I, something. And she said, well, go to a GP. And I thought, well, Christmas Eve, I'm not going to get to a GP. So my cognitive functioning was fine. And um, was she...
2: Did you have a moment of panic, and was her concern uh, equal to your concern?
1: No, I think uh, I had a sense of stupidity Hmm. and um, and embarrassment because I'm there to help with all these things to be done, and I'm just and I didn't feel unwell. I just couldn't make words work, and. With great good fortune, my brother is a doctor and she said, um, call Sean, my Mm. brother, and so I said to my phone, you know, ring Sean, and so the phone number called up and he picked up the phone and I tried to explain to him what was going on and he listened to just for a short moment and he said very clearly in my ear, which I really remember he said, "Huey, call an ambulance. Mm and um and i handed the phone to mary my wife and they obviously had some exchange we live not far from st vincent's hospital which is where mary was going anyway and so i um i thought an ambulance isn't going to arrive in time and i was conscious of your story mm. that you'd had a stroke uh as a young fit man and and i thought well what's going on and so Is that what you
2: thought initially had happened to you? You thought you were having a stroke? No,
1: it didn't feel like a stroke. That sounds Mm. weird, but I knew something was strange. And the actual telling moment was um, I had a copy next to my bed of the Rolling Stones' Greatest Albums of All Time magazine. You know, mm. it's, it's one of these sort of nonsense things you keep when you've got something to read and you read about Yes or something <laughs> <laughs> or something <laughs> dreadful. Captain Beefheart. B- yeah, Captain <laughs> Beefheart. Why do they love Captain Beefheart? B- and I pulled up that magazine I thought, I know this. I've read this. I can read this. So I pulled it up and I started trying to read it out loud and it was just uh, – I remembered what you had said. Yeah. Sludge was coming out. Yeah. And – and I thought I don't know what's going on, but at the same time, this is the weird thing. I kind of had this sense that if I got if I whacked myself on the back of the head, it, everything would clear, like the old fashioned TV yeah. set where you give it a tap on the top and yeah. all the signal comes clear. And and I was also um, professionally embarrassed because I was due to read the news that evening to you know, to the mass audience, as we hope it might be, on, the, on Channel 10. So you were holding on to the possibility of still reading the news I, I can't I, – because, you know, like anyone who works in broadcasting or anything else like that, be right it, the there night. is that show must go on. Yeah. It doesn't matter that your leg's been eaten off by a shark. The show must go on. And so – and I was embarrassed and a little bit concerned that I would make a fool of myself on air. Mm. But oddly enough, we started walking between Mary, who was still post-operatively – Vulnerable, and her sister. Thank heaven, uh, we started walking down towards the um, hospital. It's only a distance of three hundred meters or so, and uh, then a kind of a tunnel started to appear around me, and I, and I and my movements became quite, um, uh, you know, Mary described as being like a someone in a in a deep sea diving outfit, mm. so that fine motor movements and stuff. I was walking like a person, like clomp, clomp, clomp type of thing. with it, my legs. it was almost
2: as though you had to think about the biomechanics of moving rather than just saying walk and you will walk.
1: That's right. I had, I had a kind of like uh, I could still make gross motor movements but not fine motor movements. Mm. So it was, it was like, um, uh, y- y- yes, it was almost as if, some primitive element mm. of my brain was still functioning but other stuff was shutting down. I could actually see visually, I, you know, I could almost see like this kind of darkness mm. uh, around it and we fortunately didn't have far to go to the hospital and um, And my wife went in there on the advice of my brother and to say, I think he's having a stroke mm. and they brought me in pretty quickly and um, they were asking me questions and I was, I was plainly, I, I couldn't particularly make things coherent. In fact, I couldn't give they said what's your date of birth. I could hear everything. I mm. could understand everything and I couldn't come up with an answer. I, hesit- I hesitated and stammered through it. And it, Did you know and, the answer
2: and, and you couldn't tell them or you No, you I didn't at have that sta- I
1: don't know at that stage, but I remember I said 20. Yeah. Which is nonsensical. I mean, it was coming up to 20. Twenty uh, was that it? You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. was I twenty? Yeah. No, that was the um, one number that you could. Yeah, I came at that up there. It sort of, of had seemed to have some relevance that I could get out there. I knew it was wrong. Yeah, but all I could say was twenty. And then next thing you know, I'm in the MRI, and and then they, I can't remember which one they did first, but I stayed conscious through this. But they they put me into one sort of a scan, and then they came out and they sort of said with excess cheeriness, "They said, right, we're going to give you another one of these, mm. <laughs> a different scan now," and they shoved me in, into the other one. How was your mood?
2: Were you? Were, I mean, I was
1: relieved to be there. Yeah. At that point, I thought I'm in someone else's hands. I know you what and your they're doing. I, I've, I'm here. Okay, so now I can do whatever. And um, and that's where they found uh, a brain tumor. Mm. So um, uh, and so, th- did and they so tell I've, you straight away? Um, they were pretty good, actually. Mm. So after the first scan, they apparently went out to Mary and said, "We think he's had a stroke." and then they they went into to do the other scan with whatever else it tells you and th- and then they they brought me back out again and a really excellent neurologist was there on duty on christmas eve and um and she said look you've you've got a brain tumor uh um we think it's uh, it looks benign mm. it doesn't look like a metastatic brain tumor and um uh, and and we're going to work with you on that.
2: Had you managed to recognise that emotionally you had been affected by something that was in your brain as well? Like, uh, you know, did it feel like a sort of out-of-body experience? Did it feel like it was happening to someone else?
1: It, I felt like it was happening to me, and yet I was quite passive about it. Right. Uh, so I she also said it's inoperable Mm. and it's funny how she came up with that answer it wasn't you know i I remember thinking i thought inoperable was the kind of thing they decided after a lot of but she was she said look you've got a brain tumor it appears to be benign um it's inoperable because
2: of the location Uh,
1: because of the location of it and also once i saw the scans and it was talked through i realized that it was so well involved with other parts of my brain Mm. essentially you'd have to take out a lot of brain to get to it and um and she said it's in the language part of your of your head mm. which explains what, what had happened. And the funny thing is is that in previous years uh, I'd started to have migraines mm. and certain conditions would bring them on if I was dehydrated, a lot of sunlight, a lot of driving and bright light, stuff like that would start to trigger it off. So I'd started to get these migraines and I'd also started to have and I'd realised this, uh, almost permanent low-level headache Right, and I also had exercise headaches. So if I set off to do a bunch of push-ups or something, I could be, feel fine. At about the 40th push-up, suddenly there's a stabbing pain right. in my head. And I, I remember one time when this happened, getting this cold clear clarity, uh, w- almost like a voice in my head said, there's something in your head. Mm. And, and I kind of examined that as an idea. This is long before this, the partial seizure. Um, and I thought, there is something in my head. Something's mm. changed in my head. And, of course, being an Australian male, I did nothing about it. Until finally
2: <laughs> until it, knocked, you had to. Until
1: it knocked on the door.
2: Because um, you called me probably, I think it was probably in February... Um, probably sort of six weeks after the incident. Um, and we had a, a short conversation about other bits and pieces and a friend in common and uh, and then you said, oh, look, you know, something strange has happened to me. Um, and in inimitable Australian style, you, you sort of downplayed what had happened and part of that was because you had other things that were happening in your life and what had happened to Mary. Um, and I think part of it is because we all do that. <laughs> we all sort of... Um, we all sort of – I mean this is definitely something that happened to me when I had my stroke. I made every effort to pretend that nothing had happened because if I pretended nothing happened, then maybe nothing happened. You know, maybe it's something I'd gotten away with. Maybe it was just a just a good story. Um, and you, you know, you sort of gave, gave me the impression that um, it was something that was being managed and it was okay and, you know, you – sort of 90% of your speech seemed to be fine. But when I was talking to you, I'm like, well – you are somebody who, who um, has a, a, a fluidity of language, a beautiful fluidity of language. You know, you, you speak in um, beautiful, complete sentences and paragraphs and, and a little bit of that, I, it seemed to have been lost um, in that conversation that we had, just a little bit.
1: You're the only person who actually noticed it. Mm. Uh, uh, my wife had noticed it. And also I'd learned something through this process and that is that when we speak, uh, we're like pianists, uh, you know. A piano player doing the concerto is not thinking, "Where does my middle finger go next?" Y- no. You can't do that. You know, they're in a different space creating the sound, and we're the same. If we want to talk about anything, uh, the words the organize themselves around our thoughts, and we don't we don't go looking for the next word, except for those. You know, there's occasions where we go, what was the name of that person or, or where was that or what do we, you know. So we all, we all at some stage will do that. It's called word finding. Mm. And the brain normally does that quite automatically. But what happened, particularly in that early stage after when my brain was still quite jangled by this event, uh, my word finding became, uh, well, it just it took a holiday. Yeah. And, in fact, I went back to news reading, I think, only a day or so later. And for the first three or four days... When I was reading it, I was the piano player figuring out what the where the next thing was so, you know there 's an auto cue there, and I would read the words with quite a degree of concentration mm. without necessarily even taking in all the meaning of the word and Then, after three or four days, it started to get back to f- fluency but um I noticed that uh my brain would throw up words which were not the correct word. Mm. And immediately I'd know it wasn't the correct word. And it, w- it was happening all the time, in fact. Uh, so often that I didn't even take note of it. But I took, because I wanted to report back to the new neurologist, I, I took note of a couple. and An example being is that we'd gone to a neighbor's place. He's, he has a swimming pool and he also is a great cook. So the kids were in his pool and, uh, and he'd cooked up this fabulous piece of slow-cooked beef or whatever it was. And the kids eventually got out of the pool and I, and I said said to them as I sit there with the towels around them, have you had any, um, and I mean to say meat, mm. but what I said is have you had any milk? And the kids kind of look at me like, <laughs> you know. And then I immediately know what's wrong and I'm looking at the stuff there and I have to, you know, this red
2: fleshy stuff. And, and you just don't know what it is.
1: And I, and I, and I went, Meat. Have you had any meat? But there was this awkward long gap by yeah. which time they'd done it. And that was happening quite a bit. And and then when you think about it, you say, well, my brain had gone looking for a nutritious substance, short yep. word begins M. with M, milk yep. will do fine. Four letters. And so so for a while um, that was happening. All kinds of random things were coming into the middle of a sentence. And I'd recognize their stupidity or their inaccuracy yeah. and then correct it. Um Uh, I'm on like a whole bunch of medications now which manage the anti-seizure medications, anti-migraine medications and other sorts of things that have been quite effective in in, in resolving all of that. But when I spoke to you on the phone, you were straight onto it. Mm. You know, you didn't hesitate.
2: Well, because there there are are a lot of similarities between what happened to you and what happened to me. And uh, that that idea of word selection... um, I'm working on a book at the moment about uh, about the things that had happened to me, and I went back and looked at where the, where most of the damage was when I had the stroke. Um, and I had always made the made the assumption, you know, I had this sort of simplistic understanding of of, where, of the way that the brain worked, and I was like, oh, it was the language function was where the damage was, but it's it's in the Broca's area, which is which is actually uh, it's almost a conduit between the four parts of the brain that are required for language. But uh, I had a similar thing where there would be words I'd be talking. This was after I'd had um, most of a recovery. And I saw these roadblocks coming up. I'd be like I recognised that this thing was coming um, and either I didn't know the word or I had put a word in there and I knew that word was wrong. And so I'd be talking and talking and talking, getting closer and closer to this roadblock, and then I'd get there and I'd stop. I'd either stop or say the wrong word or... um, And then like I, I was... I didn't know what to do after that, you know. Um, and we, we came up, uh, me and a friend of mine, um, because everybody had, had known what had happened to me, that it was kind of okay that I, that I kind of got these things wrong. But just f- just for the purposes of, of progressing forward in the conversation, um, I just put, this, put the two words cornflakes in my mind and used that and then contextually people could understand what I was talking about rather than tripping over the word that I saw coming ahead.
1: You would genuinely use the word cornflakes?
2: Yeah. Yeah, because my friends, in that in, you know, in that time, they knew that I was that I was doing that. So you know, I'd just be able to keep. So talking. they would
1: understand that that would be just you putting in a word, and you don't know what the meaning is, yeah. but the context is still accessible to yeah. the people you're talking to who know you.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you if you're reading a story and you know the, there's there's two hundred words and one of the words is missing, the story is still going to work, but it's not going to work if you just stop talking. <laughs> um, so how long did cornflakes? Oh, not 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 for very long, not for very long at all. But um, there, there, there was definitely a long period where um, I was in the place where you were when we spoke on the phone, where I was like, um, uh, for all intents and purposes, from other people's perspective, I had I I was well, but I wasn't, and I recognised that in my mind, and it was very frustrating. And the thing that I thought about a lot um, is. My language function has been damaged, but what else has been damaged? You know, the the brain is the thing that uh, gives us our understanding of ourself. And if it's damaged, we're not necessarily going to know that it's damaged. And I was like, am I affected emotionally as well, you know? Um, And I think that I would have been worrying about that less if it happened to me at this age. But because it happened to me when I was 26, um, you know, you're in that that stage of life where you are going to be obsessing about, you know, who am I and, you know... um
1: is now the time to talk about your stroke?
2: Yeah, 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 for sure. I was I was boxing. Um, I was at Castle Ray Street in a gym in Castle Ray Street. It was when I was working at a men's magazine. It was lunchtime. Um, and I was I was punching the heavy bag and um, uh, rapping along to to Tupac's song, to California Love, which I used to know all the words of um, pre-stroke. And then all of the words started to disappear. Um and I sort of like was, was still boxing and waiting for the chorus to turn up because I was like, oh, I know the chorus. Like I'll definitely know that. And then the chorus came and I was like, oh, my God, I don't even know the two words that are, the you know, the, the title of the song. Um, Can I, I ask
1: you, was the music still completely coherent to you and normal?
2: Uh, I knew that I knew the song. Um, so that was actually while I was just a at the the beginning of having the stroke. So I'd actually got a little bit worse after that. So it was like, um, you know, I sort of eased into my stroke. (laughs) Um, So I knew that I knew the words and I I knew when the chorus was coming and, you know, like I was just sort of like, I'm okay, I'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there. And then it was gone and then I was like, I was thinking as the word California was coming, I was sort of thinking about um, what California was. And I was like, oh, I know that. And I, there was there was some um, associations with California where I was like, well, I know it's, you know, sunshine. I know it's, you know, for some reason I was thinking of oranges and orange juice. And But at the time it was the same with you in that uh, I just thought, well, this is a bit weird, you know. I just thought this is a little bit odd. Um, and so I got in the shower and um, that was the first time where I actually had any sort of um, physical symptoms. I had sort of starbursts in my eyes a little bit. Um, and I showered, and I I was sort of thinking, I, I sort of sort of taking stock a little bit of what I did know, and I knew that I had to go to work, and I kind of knew where work was, but I didn't really, I couldn't get a handle on anything else really. Um, did, did
1: you put it down to say over exercise?
2: Or? No, um, because it was it was such an unfamiliar experience. But um, in that moment even then I hadn't, I I wasn't panicked. And I think part of the reason that I was panicked is because I didn't necessarily have the mental faculties at the time to, to, to sort of have enough awareness to be panicked. Um, so the panic came when I walked out of the gym and a friend of mine was in the front of the gym and uh, he was a guy at the magazine and I didn't know his name, but I knew that he was a friend of mine. And I sort of, Looked at him and and I was trying to say, oh, the strangest thing is happening to me, or you know, the strangest thing has happened to me, or you know, whatever. Um, and nothing came out. A little bit came out, but but nothing that was discernible as as language. And so, then, in,
1: in, incomprehensible. Yeah. Gibberish.
2: Yeah. So probably you know, uh, uh, like you know, a groan because you know, talking about that that pianist analogy. Um, I knew that I had to put my hands on the keys and I had to press the keys. So I kind of knew that my diaphragm had to contract and that I had to, you know, propel some sort of uh, propel my breath and turn it into language and, you know, that's all I could do. So I kind of pressed the button and that's all that came out. Um, and, but it was when he looked at me and he, he's, a, he's a pretty stoic kind of character and I think I must have known that he was a stoic character because the, the 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 consternation that he saw in his face, the panic that he saw in his face, I, I was like, oh, something's really wrong. Like, he, you know, that look on his face is because of my situation. It was because of what just happened with the thing that I just said. Um, and then I, I really distinctly remember being very, very lonely <laughs> um, and... Crying and shrugging, it was this silent. You know, I just sort of had tears on my cheeks, and I just shrugged. Just turned to him and went, "You know, I don't, I don't know." Hold
0: up.
2: And then he took me to a medical centre um, and at that medical centre they... I
1: I just want to pause on that. So the feeling sounds like one of utter helplessness. Yeah, it was definitely that. And your one connection really was this bloke whose name you didn't know.
2: Yeah, who I I didn't even remember who or I couldn't uh, discern who he was in that moment. And I couldn't attach myself to something in the past or the future either so I couldn't you know sort of go back and have these sort of fond memories of uh you know being at the doctors with my mom feeling sick and then knowing that I'm gonna gonna be okay because I couldn't I couldn't get access to those memories um and I couldn't think about you know uh I was going to be with my girlfriend soon or you know I was going to see my family because I didn't I, I didn't really understand that, that they existed for me at that, at that point in time.
1: So it wasn't just language that was affected at this point. In fact, some entire uh, continuity yeah. had gone.
2: Yes, yeah. But the other, you know, the sort of complicating factor about that is that um, I don't have a lot of autobiographical memory about what happened at that time, but I know that my mind has put together a story about it. And I don't know how true that story is. You know, there there are some visions, there are some things that I understand. I know that my memory of that event was affected. And I know that, you know, we have in our minds these machines that put together these, uh, you know, these little pat stories that have meanings and endings and things like that. And I know that it's thrown a bunch of um, stimuli into this, you know, uh, meaning-making machine in my brain. I know it spat some stuff out. And I'm like, okay, I'm... It, it, it's it's not the most reliable narrator, I don't think. Um,
1: this is fascinating for a storyteller. So, what you've just told us, you know, the physical thing was real. Yeah, you know, d- defined and. But my understanding of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, and, as to my as to my best understanding, that's what happened.
1: And so, uh, this bloke was uh, plainly saw something about you that about your behaviour that worried him. Yes. How did he respond?
2: Well, I mean he took me to the <laughs> this is great interviewing technique here. <laughs> um, so he, he took me to a medical centre and they had an assumption that um, that I was high, um, that, that I had a drug overdose or something like that uh, because I was sweaty, because I was 26. They wouldn't make an assumption that, uh, that anything else was happening. And he was saying to them, um, something's happened to his brain. You know, he told me later that this is what happened because I don't really understand what was going on. Um, But they – it took quite a long time for them to get themselves together and they actually gave me um, a form to fill out, you know, with my Medicare details and and things like that. And I just looked at it and I was like (laughs) – I didn't even know what it was. I just kind of held it and, you know, looked confused. Um, And then eventually uh, they did bring an ambulance. I actually have no idea of how long that was. You know, it might have been – I think it probably was at least half an hour but it might have been a couple of hours.
1: There's an amazing story there about assumptions. Yeah. And because you presumably weren't thinking, I'm having a stroke.
2: No. Well, I, d- I had no idea of, that a stroke existed. You know, I certainly I, I had no idea what was happening to me. But Chris, uh, the guy who was helping me out, he did tell me later on that, um, you know, he said we. I tried to tell them, you know, over and over again. I said we need to get an ambulance, you know. Um, but yeah, it is interesting about assumptions because you know he's a guy with tattoos. You know he's a boxer. Um, we were both very sweaty. We're in the middle of the city, so this this was the assumption. I mean, um, that, that that we're a couple of you know a couple of drug users who who've taken a bit too much or taken the wrong thing. Um, eventually, they they took me to the hospital, um, and it must it must have been six or seven hours later. Um, because after work I was meeting up with a friend uh, and he must have heard what was going on and he ended up going to hospital. So I was boxing at about 12.30 and this must have been about 6 or 7 o'clock.
1: Before you got to the hospital?
2: No, this is, this is when I actually sort of came out of the worst part of the stroke. Um, so I had been in emergency and those parts I, I only remember. Like I remember watching the news. I remember sitting there and the, the news was on, on the TV and I was try- I was desperately trying to put together the stories of what was happening, so there was a house that had been on fire, there was a woman, she looked sad there was a policeman I'm like, "Ah, oh, these are all related something's going on you know and then all of a sudden somebody was swimming in a pool they' obviously moved over to the to the sports section of the news and I was like, "Oh, how does that relate to <laughs> you know the woman wow. in the and the in the house um, but I came out of it when um Uh, This friend of mine, he was standing over me and I was lying in a hospital gurney at that point. Um, I I can't remember but I must have had some scans or something at that point. But I do remember him standing over me and he had this T-shirt and there was a word on it. Um, And I was like, okay, let's figure this out. Let's figure out what this word is. Um, And there were some grizzly bears and there was a mountain... Um, and there was a snow-capped mountain and the first letter was a V and I was like, okay, I think this is a V. I'm sort of putting it all together. Um, And then slowly but surely it was like, it's Vancouver. I was like, "It's the word is Vancouver. And I said to him, I said Vancouver, and he kind of looked at me and went, yeah, okay, Vancouver. Um, But that was when it was like, okay, you know, I'm I'm moving in the right direction now.
1: It's funny because I would have thought that if you had by this stage – you know, the medics have figured out you've got a fit twenty-six-year-old mm. man. Uh, presumably, by this stage, they realised you'd had a stroke. No,
2: they they, they actually thought that I had um, a virus in the brain, um, and so they only uh, the the diagnosis for a stroke only came the next day.
1: It's really important is it, to get onto strokes early. There's, I, I mean, it's bleeding essentially. You want you want to stop bleeding or to or to manage it. I. I yeah,
2: better. mine was a different type of brain, uh, a different type of stroke. So it was a clot that had gone into the brain, and it was an occlusion. So it stopped the blood from being able to go to those areas in the brain, rather than it becoming bleeding in the brain. Um, so I think it. My, my understanding that it was that it was an occlusion, and then eventually it went through the uh, the area. The clot went through the area that had been that had been stopping the blood in that in that spot, and then that's when things sort of started to get better. But it did take a long time for me to be able to. To read and write again, and to elucidate, to have conversations, and you know, it was uh, it was kind of a long road.
1: So you were working as a writer. Yeah,
2: well, yeah, I was working at Ralph Magazine, um, and I remember I remember the day when I went back to work, um, and they said, okay, well, you know, don't do anything that's sort of mental heavy lifting. So I just did Q and As and listicles and things like that, um, and. I recognised that when I went back to work my understanding of humour still existed because um, we did a lot of sort of humorous articles and I was like, oh, it's funny, it's the cadence not the language that sort of makes the humour um, and I could still sort of write that stuff but then I tried to write a feature and I remember I remember filing the feature and the, you know, the filing process that we had at Ralph Magazine at the time was uh, you'd put it into the server and then you'd also print off a version for the editor um, so I took it into the editor's office and put the, put the article down and then I walked back to my office which was sort of like six desks away and I sat there and looked at him, um, watched him in his glass office start reading the thing and he was like holding it with two hands and then leaning on one arm and then leaning in his hands because <laughs> I could I could see that he was like, what am I going to do with this guy? <laughs> you know, oh this was gobbledygook. This doesn't make any sense.
1: I want to wind back just slightly. You said that humour is based not on language but on cadence. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, it seemed to me that um, the language parts of my brain, you know, you were talking about this this pianist thing. I, I, I actually spent a lot of time then thinking about the way that language works because um, – what had seemed to happen to me was that the modular aspect of speaking, of writing, had been broken for me. So when, we, when we're thinking about the things that we want to say, we get these chunks. So we might have like four or five words, you know, and then if you, you'd you be searching for a good adjective or you're trying to uh, extend the sentence that you have, you know, and then you sort of put, stitch the whole things together, thing together. But at the time, I was sort of doing it word by word by word by word. But when I was sitting down and, and sort of writing these articles and when I was joking around in the office and things like that, I could get into the rhythm of it. You know, bump, bump, bump. you know, this is this is where a punchline goes, this is where we have a setup, you know, all that sort of stuff. That that sort of style of, of of humorous writing that we had for Ralph. And I sort of still had that. Um, and so it didn't necessarily matter that I had all the perfect words, I could go and put them in later on. Um, but as long as I sort of had the structure of it, I could still do that type of work. It was only when I went and tried to do long form stuff and, and do features was when I really sort of came a cropper.
1: What has happened to your brain in terms of language since then? You know, obviously you're a professional writer with mm. tremendous successes, lots of books sold and a number of genres. Uh, what, so did your brain just come good?
2: Uh, it, was, it was a really slow process um, and after I had the stroke, so I had the stroke at 26 and then at 29 um, I had a heart attack and had to have a valve in my heart replaced. Um, and then when you have that type of surgery, it was open heart surgery at the time, uh, which it isn't anymore. It's, it's minimally invasive surgery generally. Uh, you go on a heart-lung machine and there's a thing called pump head that actually affects your cognition as well when you go on the, on the heart-lung machine. Um, and there is actually a couple of really interesting research articles about um, how Dick Cheney's uh, politics changed when he had a series of heart attacks and he had to be on the heart-lung machine and sort of, you know, he became an arch-conservative whereas previously he'd been a, he'd been a centrist. Um, but, but I had changed then as well. And I think that I sort of
1: There'd be a few wars that might not have been uh, carried well, that's out. that's the only... suggestion.
2: <laughs> that's the suggestion. Who knows? Um, but that is it. That is something. So previously, I had been thinking about brain damage in the context of language for me, um, and I had got to a point where I could, you know, write a Ralph magazine article, which you know is is not uh, the height of of literary achievement, but you know, it's it's something. So I could do that, and I was sort of perfectly happy doing that, and I was pretending that nothing had happened to me, and I was drinking a lot and partying a lot and, you know, just sort of living my life. But then at 29, I had this heart attack. It was a related issue. Um, And I went on the heart-lung machine. And from my perspective, it felt like I had brain damage again. Um, But it wasn't language. It wasn't just language. It was emotional this time as well. Um, And it feels to me like that's where my career started, you know, um, at age 29 because previously everything that I'd done was sort of a bit tongue-in-cheek. I did music criticism. I, you know, worked a rap magazine which is, you know, there's…
1: A lad magazine. Yeah,
2: it's a lad's magazine. It was like everything was tongue-in-cheek, nothing was serious, you know. Um, But because I'd had this this incident where things that were serious to me happened to me um, and I was sort of really cognizant of the fact that I wasn't going to live forever, you know, like I'd had this moment and I'd thought a lot about about what it would have meant if I had died then. Um, and I was like, oh, I want to do something different. And that was the first time I went to Iraq a couple of months after the heart attack um, and did an embed with the with the ADF and that's when my career sort of changed.
1: Um, so you say it changed you emotionally. What emerged from that? What was the man that emerged from that?
2: Well... I wanted to do, uh, like I, I really kind of wanted to do serious work then or I wanted to do something that would mean things to the reader more so than just like this is a chuckle, this is nice, so, you know, this is, you know, whatever not, it not is. Not to
1: undervalue a good chuckle.
2: No, no, no. I love a good chuckle. It's great, you know, but it just wasn't it wasn't the thing that was driving me at that point in time. And then things changed again uh, significantly for me when I first started working with Mark Hunt um, so I worked in the entertainment space, and I'm sure you would be—I'm um, sure you'd be mindful of the fact that quite often, as a journalist, you have ten minutes with someone, or fifteen minutes. You have an understanding exactly of what you want. You—you you, know—you uh, sort of corral them to the to the tone of the story that you're that you're writing, or that you're that you're putting together as a package. You get it; it all works. It's great. You know, like that there, there, there's something in that. You know, that means something. Um, but. When I, when I did this book with Mark Hunt, I was like, oh, my God, I'm actually going to have to know who this guy is, <laughs> you know. Um, for those who don't know, Mark's actually coming up on the podcast um, and he's a guy who who went through a lot of really traumatic events and he hadn't spoken to anyone about those events. He's a he's a UFC fighter. He um, was in a house, a very abusive house, where there was rape and incest and things like that. Um,
1: One of the scariest father stories I've ever read.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really brutal. It's... Um, I mean it's a, it's a really t- the first couple of chapters are really a really tough tough um, book to read. Um, but when I did that it felt gratifying that that felt like what I wanted to do. Did you did you have a moment what was your sort of journalistic moment where you were like this is what I this is what I'm doing it
1: for? Um yes. I'm so listening to you that it's funny to wind back and think about myself. Um it crept up on me but but even when I was a teenager because I started out of school and and I started from Christchurch in New Zealand and they sent me off to a, uh, a course in the second half of, of 1979 in Auckland mm. uh, to learn basically shorthand typing and a few of the basic skills of journalism. And I was about to go back to Christchurch. I pretty much wrapped up when I got a telegram from my Christchurch boss telegrams, do you mind, mm-hmm. saying call the office and I called and that was how I learned that there was a uh, an Air New Zealand flight was overdue on a tourism flight over Antarctica right? and the Search and Rescue Centre was being established in uh, Auckland and so th- I scurried off to the Search and Rescue Centre and uh, in the course of that, there were a lot of calls coming in, there were people there trying to see what they could find out, there was not much they could do, the you know, the plane had gone missing in or around Antarctica. It was evident at a certain point that it wasn't just a radio difficulty. They weren't going to come back because they were overdue to come back to anything. So it must have crashed somewhere into the sea or into the mountains. Mm. And in the course of this, uh, the phone would go and it was the BBC looking for information. And the, the guy who was the search and rescue coordinator would just hand me the phone. This is how kind of small town in a way it was mm. and said, look, can you talk You talk to them? It's the BBC. So I would give them the latest information that they had. I was reporting for the BBC on on what turned out to be a disaster. Mm. And uh, 257 people, I think, died. Mm. Uh, and we went through the night with that. And eventually I was actually near the telex machine when it uh, it started clattering away and said, uh, wreckage sighted, uh, no sign of life. And, um, and I actually let the search and rescue... ...coordinators know that this had just come up on the telex, ...so I knew before they did. And uh, and so again, at that point it was a confirmed disaster. Mm. And we're uh, again, I filed through the night. And I remember the next day I walked out... ...and it was it was a midweek day in, in Auckland. Uh, it would normally be busy, it was a busy city... ...and there was nothing there. It was almost like a neutron bomb had happened. Everyone I think stayed home. And it, it was almost cinematic... Uh, I was, hadn't slept, I walked through there, you had that sense of being sort of washed through and there were literally newspapers blowing in the street from the previous day and almost no one in sight. And I had a sense for the first time that um, uh, two things, that big things affect everyone mm. and they change people's perspectives about things. And also, importantly for a very young lad, I was only uh, 18 years old, that history is not immutable. As a child, you think all history has happened and everything from now is going to be some sort of consistent present. And uh, at that moment, I just realised that history changes. Mm. Everyone's changed by this. And so from that very early on stage, I I recognised that... um, that journalism in its own way is only a small part of all of this, but it matters. And that communities cohere around the stories that they tell, uh, the truths that they tell and the, the lies that they tell and the myths that they create. And that this is a far more complex, intriguing and interesting calling than than I'd imagined. Mm. And so I think from there I followed that. And I've never it's more than forty years ago and I've I've never got tired of it.
2: Well, I mean, you you had this um, this instance of discovering this tumor um, in at the end of 2019, um, and you're still out there uh, covering the most significant stories. You went to the U.S. recently for um, for the uh, election of Joe Biden. What ended up becoming the election of Joe Biden um, was there a part of you that you thought perhaps you know your foreign correspondency days might might have been over, and you might be better served just being at home, or is it is it is it a case of it's it's a defining part of your character that, that you have to do these things.
1: Well, it's interesting because I'm very grateful to have been sent. Um, you know, that my employer still thinks I'm, you know, the go-to person for these jobs. And mm. It was an extraordinary experience to be there and to travel around the United States, not obviously just in Washington, but, you know, when you have Black Lives Matter riots going on in Philadelphia and the whole town is kind of lost... There's no control over it. People are getting shot and mm. looting is wholesale, and then go down to two days later in West Texas with the 95 percent Trump voters, and they have a totally different perspective about the country. So uh, I did think that. I think that one of the things that happened after my wife uh, was diagnosed was that uh, I was doing a radio show on ABCRN, uh, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I was also had it, it had just sort of happened by accident. Uh, you know, a lucrative um, speaking business. You know, I say business, I, I didn't go looking for the work, but mm. all this work would come in because there's a certain profile with it. And But I was working seven days a week and I had three young kids at home and things like that. And I've always felt part because I guess I did leave school and go and start off and I I'd never had any family money or any other kind of backing. So every dollar I've ever spent I've earned mm. that, that you have to keep making the money because you never know when it's going to get turned off in, in the game that we're in and I think a whole bunch of things came together uh, my wife's illness um, my own and uh, and I thought I don't need to do any of this my wife is totally supportive she mm. said you don't need to do any of this you know just just do enough to keep yourself you know interested and um, and it's that's been a, a huge... Relief, and I, and I think one of the things about it is, is that it's enabled me to, uh, to do what you always say that you're going to do, but enabled me actually to do it, and that is to say the most important thing is to be around my wife and my kids. Mm. And, um, you know, it's funny. As we speak, my, my, I got a phone call about an hour before I came in here that said my mum had died mm. uh, at the age of 90. And, you know, you look, you look back at, you know, a woman's life, the influence on you and so on, and, you know, at some stage that'll be me. And, you know, it is really important to, to make connections, uh, to enrich those connections uh, as much as you can. So I'd like to travel overseas when the travel comes back again. And um, I think foreign corresponding is where I'm actually where it fits most naturally with where I am. Mm. And uh, but, you know, all of it is good. But but the other thing is is uh, over over decades of being essentially a travelling reporter, often overseas, often in really u- ugly and difficult conditions, I've found it satisfying. It's taught me an enormous amount about the world and about human behaviour and character. Um, but it's also, I realise far too late, it's it's extremely difficult for people who you love. Uh, and is worse, it easier if you're with someone
2: who is in the business like as Mary is?
1: Um, It can be, but I remember there was a point where uh, I'd come back from Afghanistan and uh, uh, it had been pretty active when I was there and Mary said to me, right, that's it, no more wars. Mm. And I think, you know, and I recognised that I'd asked a lot of her anyway. So, um, you know, you can't say for certain no more wars. You know, wars, history says they spring up and... Mm. And maybe I go there, but I recognise now more about the balance. Um, you also feel a certain uh, responsibility uh, that if you're in an outfit and there are complex uh, environments environments that have to be reported, I feel as if I'm, I have the experience mm. to, to get teams in and out with a better chance of them staying alive. So I do feel a sense of responsibility, rather than you know people get very enthusiastic. That about That is something going.
2: the correspondents say to themselves often when they are a little bit um, uh, addicted to the action.
1: I don't have a combat addiction. You I don't hate, think you do? I, no, I hate, I hate wars. Yeah. I hate them. Um, no good comes of them. Uh, you know, I think my reporting has been often about what happens to people at the you know at the bottom end of power, mm. and war is an ultimate expression of that. I have no. Nothing but loathing for wars. Uh, you can have good days in war zones. You can make extraordinarily strong relationships very quickly, uh, but the the balance is is awful. You know, if there were no more wars, the world would be a far better place for it. But uh, have you have
2: you been in a situation where you were exhilarated at the idea of of entering a, a conflict zone? I mean, this is something that a number of Australian journalists, including you know Michael Ware, have had issues with. You know, even though you even though you hate the idea of war and you know the the, the bloodshed and the conflict and all that sort of stuff, but um, there there is almost a, a physiological uh, uh, want to be in those situations.
1: Well, well, Michael is a friend of mine of long standing, and we we worked together for CNN out of the uh, out of Baghdad mm. uh, f- for a period. He was uh, com- he he basically was a lifer in that war. He 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 rarely left the war zone. Uh, no military um, person deployed to the Iraq War spent as much time in there as Michael Ware did. Mm. And he was uh, often, he sought out, the, you know, the most kinetic uh, battles the whole time. And, and so that's Michael. Michael is a uh, remarkable human being. He's paid an enormous price for that. Mm. Fine reportage, and courage that he's displayed in, in war zones. Uh, uh, for me... Uh, You know, conflict zones, are. uh, there's always a sense of uh, dread, anxiety, uh, but mixed with curiosity, uh, professional interest, and also uh, stories. You know, we're in the game we are. We would not be in the game we're, we're in if it were not for the fact that we are drawn by Stories, mm. human stories, and uh, they don't always have to be in really flash, bang war situations. But in all, but kinds they happen of more often zones. in that context. They can do, and they seem to have a, But sometimes a particular moment. And the thing that I look for in in those war zones, those big war zones, are the the, the tiny micro stories that mm. tell the picture, and often about. What it's doing to a particular person on on the ground uh, you know you, you know you can you're constantly stumbling over over remarkable stories always remarkable stories because mm. the stakes are so high for everybody and um and that's it it's you know the, the military they talk about a target rich opportunity or a target rich environment which mm. means essentially there's lots of the enemy to shoot but if I take that metaphor and say that as a journalist, if you're looking for stories, it's a target-rich environment. There are so many stories of so much critical importance. Everyone's living so much on the edge mm. uh, that you you find so many that's, that, stories.
2: That's funny you should say that. Um, it, it puts me in the mind of um, uh, when I was with our friend Dengadut, uh, I yeah. wrote a book with Dengadut called Songs of a War Boy. And when I was in South Sudan with him, we were sort of retracing his steps, um... We were we were often near Boartown, which is which is close to where his his village is. Um, you know, and a white guy in the market with Deng, and we're sort of walking along, and a guy comes up and says, um, "He says, what are you doing?" I said, "I'm writing a book with uh, with this guy Deng," and he said, "Oh, what's his story?" And I said, "Well, he was you know taken from his village when he was seven, and uh, you know he he ended up in the war and." He was shot and injured and, you know, his brother sort of saved him and took him to, uh, to Kenya and then they managed to escape to Australia and he became a lawyer. And this guy just said, what's the
1: story? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand. It's funny, you know, because when the book came out, uh, a journalist of some note contacted me knowing that I had a, a connection with Deng, totally skeptical mm thought that Deng's story was so fantastic it had to have been made up. And so it was basically angling yeah. to say, look, you know. Destroy him as a, looks, looks a you know, It looks a bit unlikely. Uh, you know, this, can this possibly be true? And I'm saying having travelled in and reported in South Sudan, you know, in the 90s, um, I had to say, look, uh, I don't know if every element of his story is true, because I can't know all that kind of stuff, but I see no reason to disbelieve him. Yeah. And, uh, and I can tell you that there were so many other boys uh, taken and destroyed by that war. Well, yeah. what
2: he doesn't recognise is it's a self-selecting group. Um, you know, when we were in Juba, we were driving down the street um, getting some money changed... And this guy just yells over, "Dang, dang!" And it was a guy that he had fought with in the war and hadn't seen him since he was 12. And they both had been taken from rural villages, um, you know. So the, the village that Deng was taken from is like, your, you know, your National Geographic understanding of what an African village was like in the, in the 60s. You know, it's, it's, it really is very elementary. And both of them had been taken from villages like that. But then Ajak is this guy who we bumped into on the street. He said, I'll oh, come, come to my offices. We went to his office and he had a legal practice and he was there in a suit and, you know, he was the same age as Dang, He was 33 and we're having gin and tonics and we're chatting. And I said, you know, I think it's a little strange that both of you guys were, were taken from these um, from these tiny little villages and, you know, you fought in the war and then you, you both ended up becoming lawyers. And both of them were like, well, no. And I said, why, 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 do you, why don't you think that's strange? And Ajac said, well everybody who didn't have the hustle, everybody who didn't have the opportunity, who didn't have the the sort of drive to do something after the war, they're all dead. You know, you, he said that's why, you know, everybody who survived ended up having this sort of third act or, you know, second act. Um, so that's that's why those sort of those stories, those incredible stories exist in places like, like South Sudan.
1: Yes, it's, it's true. They're amazing, amazing people. Um, I think you're dead right that the... Like uh Deng's older brother was a dear friend of mine mm. and uh who went back to South Sudan and was tragically killed there. Uh he was to my mind the most re- re- one of the most remarkable men I've ever met. Mm. Um, who'd had all these war dreadful wounds of battles, uh, and yet remained optimistic, uh, found a way out of it, managed to spring Deng out of a child soldier camp, found his way to Australia, uh, made a life for himself in Australia, went went back to South Sudan, and was killed there. It's tra- it's tragic. He um,
2: he is one of the most fascinating people I've ever written about who I've never met. Yeah. Um, you know because there was there were all these different accounts of John, um, and I just you know, I just was like, how could this just be one person? You know, he was like, there were these, you know, incredible stories of of him, uh, you know, building a business empire in South Sudan when he finally went back there after the war and, you know, sort of running this uh, little airline and, you know, uh, bringing, um, uh, bringing four drives in and out for the UN and then there's stories of him being a sort of a bit of a hustler and having this incredible love story with Elizabeth but, you know, possibly not being as faithful as he could have been and, you know, he just... He he just exhibited all of these different uh, parts of humanity in him, um, and sort of bringing him as one character in the book was was you yes know, an was
1: enormous enormous he had enormous temperament he got tr- tremendous uh, temperament and. Uh, Humanity, I'm glad you said that because he had this tremendous humanity. He was a huge figure mm. and he did things like start schools. He, you know, he founded schools. So it, if he was a hustler, he was a hustling for better things and he was determined not to be part of the corrupt kleptocracy yeah. that's taken over the place. Is a tragic loss.
2: Well, no, I, I, I wasn't sort of suggesting that um – that in a disparaging way he was a hustler. Yeah. It's sort of like... He made you know, things happen. He always made things happen. That's the way you had yeah. to do it in South yeah. Sudan. That's still the way you have to do it. You know, when we when Deng and I went over there, we sort of dropped straight into this sort of like cabal of people. They carry guns, they look out for each other, you know, because that's the only way that you can survive in a situation like that unless you are attached to the government. You know, there's sort of no other way of doing thing, yeah. things. And that's, I think that's why, you know, you saying that... Uh, perhaps you're attracted to you know um it's it's like uh, hate, don't hate the player hate the game that sort of thing you know it's like when when you're in that sort of uh, combat environment or post-conflict con- com- uh, situation, you do find these people who do incredible things because it doesn't occur to them not to be able to do incredible things and that's definitely true of Deng. It never occurred to him that he shouldn't be able to do the things that he did, uh, that he is doing, you yes. know, the life that he's living. Um, the last thing I wanted to, to ask you without uh, uh, before I let you go, um, so you 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 mentioned that you have been taking this medication, this anti-seizure medication. um but it, it's affected your mood sometimes. Some yes, of the medications.
1: It's, it, look, I thank you for raising it because if there's anyone uh, going through these sorts of things, what you find at a certain point is that you're at a certain point your life was not medicated, and then after that you are medicated, mm. and uh, it goes to what a brain is really, because I was put onto an anti seizure medication called Kepra, which is quite commonly um, prescribed, and. And I, I'm, I'm certainly not going to discourage anyone from taking it, work it out with your own doctor. Um, but uh, for me, I found myself in this, it was in the middle of the lockdown um, and because of my wife's vulnerability, she had no immune system as mm. the um, coronavirus was hitting because she was under chemo and so on. We, we kind of lived separately within the same ha- house. So I would... We had, fortunately had a little apartment at the bottom of the house. So I would live there, and I'd go out, go to work, go and do the shopping, and then bleach everything and put it upstairs. But I was living this kind of isolated life downstairs, mm. which probably factored in. But the I found myself just overwhelmingly—it's not even depressed, but I, but just a—I yeah, guess it was depressed, and and totally suicidal. Mm. Suicidal ideation was complete and constant, a hundred percent of the time. I wasn't agitated about it. It was just completely like that.
2: Did you recognise that it was a byproduct of the of the medication or did you think that they were your thoughts?
1: Well, uh, it was hard for me to tell because at the same time um, there was a lot going on. My wife was hmm. uh, really in a battle, which she's progressing well with, but at that time she was in a hell of a battle. Uh, you know, COVID was hitting, you know, the queues had been in there in the streets outside the doll queues, all this sort of stuff. Um, so there are other factors in there that were glum making uh, but I'd never had any experience like this before and I made I'm so grateful to my brother having a doctor in the family because mm. uh, we talk quite frequently and I just spoke about this and he said oh he said Huey it can be a side effect of the Keppra and he says I'm going to put I'm going to get you a some a neurologist to talk to, and he got me to speak to this wonderful neurologist who said, "Yeah okay, we'll, we'll take you off that hmm. and put me onto a different medication which has the same anti seizure properties effectively, and almost immediately my mood changed hmm. now i'm grateful for that this one has a slight effect of putting on weight, so for the first time in my life i've always been skinny for the first time in my life i'm I'm now on a diet. you look great, right. good oh God bless you sir but um but w- got to touch of the Darren Lock ears to tea at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I presume that's a good thing. He it's could a probably champion. run about a champion. Yeah, about five marathons all at, back to back. Um, but I guess what I wanted to say about that is that for the first time, I've never been medicated for for my brain, hmm. and I've never been on antidepressants uh, or anything similar. Um, and I, it, the fact that my mood had become so depressed as a consequence, I guess, of brain chemistry changes that were being brought about by this medication Mm. made me realize how uh, contingent our thoughts are on micro changes in the chemistry of your brain.
2: Well that's what I was going to ask you about, because this is the most extreme example of it. But it's always happening to us all the time. It's the amount of sleep that we've had, it's the exercise that we've had, it's the food that we eat, it's the melanin on our skin, all these sorts of things. It's sort of a, it, it. it is a large component of ourself. But we assume, because this is what our brains do as sort of story making machines, that we are in control of everything. Yes. But in that moment then, you know, it's a recognition for you that we are out of control quite often.
1: We think our moods are real. Yeah. And this goes, I guess, to the fundamental question of everything you're doing is what's real. Yeah. And I've grappled with this question in a number of ways. I remember being in uh, when the Rwandan genocide was on. I had to get out of a place because it had become too dangerous for us. And somehow or other I was able to hitch a ride on, on a on a four-wheel drive that was getting out there. There were some aid workers. And very quickly, driving in the back of this ute, um, we were out of immediate danger. And it just so happened that the sun was setting across this high African plain and everything was rife with life, the green of the, mm. of the trees and, and these sorts of high grasses that were around and the clouds were up in the sky. And it was uh, unquestionably beautiful. And I was afflicted by the thought: What's real mm. is the refugee camp, the place I'd just left, full of threat. Is that real? The fact I've gone over a hill doesn't make it any less real. Is this more real? Um, what about the people in Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide who might listen to my story? Are they not living a real life because they're not in a in a state of danger? Mm. So, and so you have to, I think, accommodate the ambiguity of multiple. Simultaneous realities,
2: which is which is something that we do particularly poorly, and I think that's sort of affected our polity over the last few years. Everything is um, everything is binary. You know, everything's good or bad, and you know that's that's there's no place that it's more apparent than than on Twitter. You know, somebody's a good person or a bad person, a good thing happening.
1: Well, I I think I think of some of the Jewish things, the notions about uh, every person contains a universe, Mm. and I think in many ways it's true. We, We we are in multiple universes. And then when you come down to your brain function within that, uh, you don't know which universe you're in or how much you own or control it or how real it is or how much it even belongs to you. Um, These are profound questions and there are no easy answers to them. But one of the consequences of this is that I've come to realize that if I was to find myself uh, deeply depressed, anxious, or with all these other things that might be counted as mental illness, I wouldn't hesitate now to go to get medical advice mm. and adjust as needs be my, my brain.
2: Well, the interesting thing about that is that you are exchanging one reality for another reality and when I – I mean I was, I was hospitalised with depression when I, was, when I was a very young man but I didn't want to change things because I thought that this is – that I had tapped into this sort of real understanding of the way the universe worked. But now as someone who's a bit older and it sounds like it's the case with you as well, it's like, well, why don't you just choose a better reality – why don't you just choose one that works better for you tomorrow than than this one? Would? And
1: what makes you think that your deeply depressive reality is reality? Yeah, that that's that's a danger. Now, of course. You know, Aldous Huxley had this notion that everyone was going to go around the place basically on this drug he invented called Soma. Mm. And, it, and everyone would be in kind of happy drugs the whole time. And the, the case could be made, well, why don't we all just do that? Mm. But uh, I don't argue for that. And I do think that coming to this these insights late has been to my advantage mm. because going to a lot of places that have been extremely harsh and confronting uh, – and having in my own personal life partly as a consequence of that, you know, loss of marriages and various other disruptions in my life. Um, uh, one thing that I've gained out of that is, is, a, is a fundamental resilience. Mm. I think my mental health is fundamentally resilient. And that's hard earned. Uh, so if you're going through this uh, you know, without medication and you're feeling your ups and downs and you're going with it, keep going, mm. it's all right. Uh, if you get to the stage where you're, it's suicidal ideation. It's as likely to be something which is pathological about the the tiny micro changes in your brain chemistry than it is anything else, and you can address that, and you should. So, um, yes, I'm glad that the teenage you or the young man you has come through. Decided to keep going.
2: Yeah, I mean, I. Like I, I really believe that at some point in in everybody's life, you have to have a reconciliation with something that approaches spirituality. You know, I, I'm I'm not a traditionally spiritual person. I don't have I don't adhere to any religion, but there are a lot of things in Buddhist tenets that I'm like. Well, that just makes my life easier. So I do sort of you know this too shall pass. You know, you 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 live in this moment. You live in only one moment. You know, all all those sorts of things. And I do think at at some point. Everybody just has to have some reconciliation with, with spirituality, something that's sort of outside of, um, uh, of society that's presented to you in, in the way that it is, you know, just something else, you know. And I, I, I did a book uh, last year with Archie Roach and he was talking about his, um, his Pentecostal upbringing and then his understanding of, of um, his indigenous spirituality uh, and he he still he still spoke quite uh, fondly about the the Pentecostal days and you know uh, the time that he spent in church and singing and clapping and he he, he you know he, he really would get back there and he'd be like you know that was access to God for him, but then he said well the indigenous spirituality is access to God for him as well and I said well how you know are the two things contradictory? He said no 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 they're basically just you know two drills into the same oil well um, and you know I feel that that at some point everybody has to drill down and find some sort of sort of transcendental grace everybody who's going who's going to have a finite life and quite often it's going to happen when uh, you know you're, you're sort of confronted with that uh, with that that finite nature you know if you had a brush with death or somebody else or something like that then you kind of have to have grace you have to find yeah, it somewhere. I
1: think often young people find it or we find it in our youth when we when we do exactly what you talked about the uh, trying to sort out it's a terrible line. What's the meaning of life? But mm. the, but 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 actually, the recognition of our own death, somewhere in a distant future, uh, one one hopes. But it, it, it seems to be an entirely futile existence uh, unless you start to grapple with, um, or at least start to ask questions around that. And of course, all those religions have uh, sound psychological bases. Mm. That's how they've survived down through history. The, the, one of the other Buddhist ones is. It is about detachment, mm. and how many times you really, really kind of tying yourself in knots over something, and it's not bad to have a little voice go off and say, it "Doesn't matter that thing, you know? <laughs> why are you so attached to yeah. it? It doesn't matter. Let yeah. it go." Yeah, yeah. All right.
2: Speaking of letting go, I'll let you go. But uh, it's it's been a pleasure. I find you a, a very sort of inspirational bloke, and. Um, you know, you've had a tough couple of years but uh, this too shall pass and I'm, I'm really sorry to, to hear about your mum and, and thanks for the time. Yeah, thank you, man. Cheers. That was Hugh Remington, very interesting guy, living an interesting life um, and going through a, a tough period at the moment but going through it with all the fortitude and equanimity that you will find in his reporting. Uh, If you'd like to listen to Hugh's politics podcast that he does with Peter Van Olsen, search The Professor and the Hack at your favourite podcatcher. And if you'd like to read about Hugh's exceptional life in the journalism game, check out his excellent book, Mindfields. If you're interested in the book that we spoke about a little bit that I wrote with Denga Doot, that book is called Songs of a War Boy and it's available everywhere. Okay, next week, Australian business magnate Mark Burris is going to be on the show. And even though you may know Mark, and even if you know Mark pretty well, I think you're going to find this conversation quite surprising. I was quite surprised by some of the things that he had to say. Anyway, if you want to keep up with me and the show, my Instagram handle is at BennyMuck, B-E-N-N-Y-M-C-K. On Facebook, I'm Ben McKelvey Writer, and Hugh is on Twitter as Hugh Remington. This episode was recorded at ACAR Studios in Sydney, and until next week, follow your bliss.
1: Is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens... People don't
2: change. More reflection of the real world. Nothing happens in the world. Are you out of your fucking mind?
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.